Singularity by Bill DeSmet. Copyright 2004 by William H. DeSmet. All rights reserved. Chapter 41 The Singularity Metal objects, any metal objects, very dangerous to enter antipode station bearing things of metal. This high-pitched sing-song in alternating Russian and English greeted them as they filed out of Naftilus and into Antipode's cramped antechamber. Once through the airlock, Knox could see the source of the incantation. A stocky, middle-aged woman in a white lab coat cum radiation badge was working her way down the line of new arrivals. She waved a magic wand over each in turn, and when it buzzed, collected watches, keychains, and other shiny trinkets for deposit in individually labeled envelopes. Not his gold-nibbed waterman, too. That was a bit of an overkill. Only ferromagnetic materials should be susceptible to Vortilac's monopolar field. Metals like iron, nickel, cobalt. Come to think, that explained why Grecian had ordered his handcuffs removed, and why Mariana, the more formidable threat in their eyes, had been trussed in non-metallic webbing from the get-go. For his part, Yuri had to part with his blue-steeled machine pistol, he hefted one of the short-stocked laser rifles the rest of the six-man guard detail had been issued, but rejected it in favor of a lethal-looking ceramic revolver. Just not the slice-and-dice type, our Yuri. Likes to blow holes in things. By now, the last of Naftilus's passengers had been processed, but they still all stood there, waiting in front of the heavy inner door, a door carved from the same basalt as the walls of the antechamber itself, and emblazoned with a trisected magenta circle on a field of yellow, a warning of radiation hazards beyond. Even Grecian and his cronies, from their privileged position at the head of the line, were bearing the delay with stoic equanimity, patiently waiting for that door to swing back and admit them. What was it about Russians and lines? Something about queuing up that seemed to strike a responsive chord in the national character. Knox stood there watching the frosty clouds of his own breath, watching rivulets of moisture trickle down the rock walls in defiance of Antipode's climate control. The chill, damp air of the antechamber was an unwelcome reminder that the primeval cold of the deep sea was encamped just beyond the airlock, seeking the least fissure through which it might breach the station's defenses and pour in. Finally, the line began moving, the inexplicable logjam inexplicably broken at last. As Yuri propelled Mariana forward, she cast a fleeting glance back at Knox. Whether to seek reassurance or to offer it, he couldn't tell. Then Knox was through the doorway himself, and into a darkness relieved only by glowworms and fireflies. The glowworms were workstation displays in a glass-walled booth immediately to the right of the entrance, and the fireflies the flashing of jib lights on a huge crane-like structure positioned somewhat left of center. Overhead, the disembodied red digits of a time display plaque showed local and GMT time, plus a countdown with ten minutes and change to go till some unnamed event. As his eyes grew accustomed to the gloom, Knox could see that they were standing at the lip of a small amphitheater. Nine wide concentric tiers led downward into the dark, bottoming out in a narrow proscenium. 
the wall at the rear of that sunken platform bulged into the room as if it were one section of a larger sphere. The only flat space on that wall was dead ahead, where an intricate-looking aperture sported its own circle of warning lights. Yep, this layout pretty much matched the schematics Marianne had brought back from her foray into the then-secret lab. That meant the control room should be located against the wall to his right. There it was, the booth he'd noticed a moment ago, separated from the main chamber by walls of thick, green-tinted glass, and the operator sitting at the console, wearing the funny hat, Hard to make out with only the light from the displays to go by, but could that be Galena? Yes, it could, if her wave to Sasha was any indication. Was Galena in on this mad scheme to restore the Ancien Regime, too? Didn't seem like her. No time to pause and reflect. They were on the move again, as Grecian led his entourage down to a seating gallery on the fifth level. It felt as if the whole chamber were tipping forward more and more the further down they went. Knox tightened his grip on the handrail as the floor seemed to slope away, an incline on its way to becoming a drop-off. Or was it all just imagination? Judging from the curvature of the wall section ahead of, below him, and allowing for the thickness of heat and radiation shielding he hoped they'd thought to install, he had to be a good twenty-five or thirty feet out from the primordial black hole at Antipode's heart. Could Vortilak possibly exert its influence from that far away? It didn't even mass as much as, say, Mount Everest. Then again, it was a point source. He was trying to do the math, hampered by a blank spot in his memory where he thought he'd left the gravitational constant, when he chanced to look down. There, inset into the obsidian surface of the tier they'd halted at, glowing yellow characters read 9M 0.46 Tiag. Let's see. 9M just meant the 9-meter mark and Tiag was most likely an abbreviation for Tiagatinia, gravity, or some such. So that meant... Christ! Knox felt tiny droplets of perspiration dot his brow. Vortilak was exerting nearly half a G of pull on him, right where he stood. He groped his way to his seat, bringing up the rear behind Sasha, Yuri, and Mariana. He was moving with elaborate caution now, bracing himself against a strategically placed guardrail to keep from falling forwards, or was it downwards? Half a G at nine meters out was no joke. At his weight, he was resisting a ninety-pound pull toward the front of the room. He studied the tiers below the seating level. Two steps down, at the seven-meter mark, the microhole's tug was over three-quarters of a gravity. The proscenium floor, where it abutted the outer hull of the containment sphere, sported a large, dayglow red 5M 1.5 tiag. One and a half gravities down there. That was half the acceleration you'd feel blasting off in the space shuttle, and it was being generated by an object the size of an atom from five meters away. Knox was still trying to get his mind around that when he heard someone coming down the aisle. Grecian spoke. Miss Bonaventure, Mr. Knox, welcome to Antipode Station. You have arrived just in time for the penultimate act in our drama. He nodded toward the countdown display. Less than seven minutes left. Grecian reached inside his jacket pocket and withdrew a handheld. Ms. Bonaventure, we have reconfigured your communicator to route through Antipode's local transponder so that you may report to Mr. Aristos when the time comes. Yuri will hold onto it for you until then. 
He handed the unit to the Georgian, then straightened. As you can see, we conceal nothing. You will have every opportunity to judge the extent of our power, of our victory, in the few moments you will have to appreciate it. A few moments? That didn't sound good. Ah, Arkasha? Sasha raised his hand. Perhaps if I were to explain what is about to happen. Do as you will, Sasha. I must see to our guests. Grishin turned and Crab walked down the row of seats behind them toward where his council was settling in for the show. Sasha eased himself out of his seat and stood facing his impromptu audience, bracing himself on the handrail against Vortilak's insistent tug. The perch looked so precarious, Knox was getting queasy just watching, but then Sasha had always been oblivious to external stimuli once in lecture mode. As is well known, he said in English for Mariana's benefit, for complex undertakings, the most important thing is control and verification at every step along the critical path. Our antipode project is perhaps more complex than most, a grin. On the other hand, it enjoys much greater possibilities for self-verification. Sasha was taunting Knox. Figure it out for yourself. Knox had, though only just this instant. You mean you've been keeping your project on track using messages from the future? The ultimate project management utility. What Archon wouldn't give for that? Sasha grinned again, as if at an apt pupil. Molodietz, attaboy. Yes, John, at each of 18 key decision points over the lifetime of the project, we have received guidance from a time probe cylinder not unlike the needle Arkady Grigorievich showed to you. The very first message regarding selection of the antipode site was sent back to 12 years ago. The message arrived extremely distorted, almost as difficult to read as in 1984. But of course, we were ready for this one knew what it might say. Of course. Knox was thinking ahead. They would have identified, twelve years in the past, what range of alternatives their future selves might pick among, and to where and when they'd send the message probe announcing the correct choice. Then, once they'd received the probe, it was just a question of remembering to actually send it. The rest of our probes did not go nearly so far back, Sasha was saying. Less distortion, easier to read. The writing on the one giving the go-ahead for capturing Vordalak was quite clear, as Mariana, I believe, had the possibility to observe. Mariana looked away. Doubtless would have crossed to the other side of the room if she could. That option was denied her. Yuri had spray-glued her makeshift manacles to the arm of her chair. Sasha affected not to notice the snub. In any case, it is necessary now to provide causes for all those effects, returning each probe to the space-time coordinates where it first appeared. By all means, one global causality violation could ruin your whole day. Sasha grinned again. Ah, you understand. Knox could read Sasha's mind. This convivial give-and-take was just like the old days in Moscow. No, Sasha, even the old days won't be like the old days anymore if Grecian gets his way. Yes, it is necessary to keep temporal paradoxes to an absolute minimum, Sasha said. Over the past four hours, we have returned 17 message probes to the times and places where they belong. So it is that we balance accounts 
with the universe, paying back now the loan of information previously borrowed from the future. He winked. And you did not believe me, John, when I told you cosmology was just like high finance. Knox forced a half-hearted chuckle in return. In any case, what you will witness in... Sasha glanced over his shoulder at the countdown. One minute, thirty-five seconds, is the launching of our eighteenth and most recent time probe, for arrival less than thirty hours in the past. But enough talk. Watch now. As Sasha groped his way back to his seat, Knox sensed movement in the darkened hall. The crane arm to his left was beginning to shift position, stretching out toward the curved wall that formed the outermost shell of Vortilac's containment chamber. For long moments the only sound was the protesting of metal as the weight of the arm grew with its increasing proximity to Vortilac. By the time the mechanism came to rest again, it was almost touching the still-closed portal. Six lateral braces mounted evenly around the business end of the mechanical arm found corresponding sockets on the portal's rim and locked in place. The crane needed all the support it could get. The primordial black hole was only five meters away on the other side of the portal. Here, put this on. Sasha was holding out a small plastic rectangle with a blank gray window taking up half its surface. A radiation badge. What's the story, Sasha? You're not seriously going to crack the seal on the containment chamber, are you? That thing in there puts out enough hard radiation to cook us in a microsecond. Not to worry, John. Badges are a precaution only, Sasha said as he velcroed one on Mariana's blouse as well. Good news is... There is no radiation danger, Sasha went on. In uh, 47 seconds, we inject a Casimir capacitor into the chamber. Vordelak's event horizon goes away, and when it does, the radiation goes away with it. Oh, right. No horizon, no radiation. Jack Adler had mentioned that. As rank speculation, though. Not as something to bet your life on. If that's your idea of the good news, Sasha... I'm not sure I want to hear the bad. Bad news is, when radiation goes away, our power output drops. Bottom line, we must act quickly. Of course. They'd be using Vortilac's radiation as a power source. With it cut off, there was a limit to how long the cryostats could stay at full strength. But if they browned out, the magnetic arrays would stop superconducting. The confinement field would fail, and it was all that was holding the black hole in place. Ulp. Define quickly. How long have we got? To the cusp of destabilization, at least 1,000 seconds. Please, tell me those aren't Chernobyl seconds, Sasha, old friend. Russian engineers had a bad habit of slicing their safety margins to the bone, and this one was only 15 minutes long to begin with. John, relax. Computer alignment takes the longest, maximum 200 seconds, for recent time frames at least. Then... We quick launch the probe, close the door, release the Casimir rectifier. Vordelak re-establishes its event horizon, radiation returns. We power up again. Simple. Knox's expression must have betrayed just how unsimple that sounded to him, because Sasha added quickly, Galina has done this seventeen times already, without mishap. In a certain sense, there can be no mishap. Everything we do now has already happened. He raised a hand as Knox opened his mouth to protest. Stop talking now and watch. See our gateway into the past.
Knox looked up just as the countdown overhead went to zero. A synthesized female voice, vaguely reminiscent of Galina's, said in Russian, Singularity exposed. All readings nominal. Commencing world-line calibration. Directly ahead, directly below, the iris began to dilate. And then... An eldritch light came seeping out through the widening portal and around the eclipsing crane arm, bathing the room in a nacreous glow. Adler and Sasha had both claimed a naked singularity wouldn't give off any hard radiation. Knox hoped to hell they were right. He could almost feel the gamma rays sleeting through his unprotected body. Sometimes an overactive imagination was just no fun at all. And then he was lost in wonder, fears forgotten gazing on what Vordelak had become, gazing on the singularity. He had been here before, that single hallucinogenic roller coaster ride that had brought an end to his grad school career and very nearly him with it. He shuddered, remembering again that endless night two decades back. That experience, too, had begun with the world and everything in it splintering into delicate pointillistic patterns. He remembered how it had ended, too, with him spiraling down into the nothingness that waited in between the dots. Take it easy, Knox. The difference is, this time you can turn the whole thing off just by closing your eyes. Or could he? There was something odd about that light. He could see the whole of the circular aperture through which it poured, as if the spidery crane arm which should have blocked his view wasn't there at all. He held a hand in front of his face, lost sight of it in the gentle, insistent glow turned his head away, and found he was still looking at the light show dead on. It was as if the singularity's radiance wasn't entirely an objective external phenomenon, as if it were something his consciousness was collaborating on, a joint effort between a self-aware observer and the universe at large. Experimentally, Knox squeezed his eyes shut. The effulgences shone as bright as ever. What changed was he could no longer see his surroundings. The chair in which he sat... Mariana, Sasha, the whole room had gone away, leaving him floating disembodied and alone in the eerie lambency. And now the visions came. They had been there all along, perhaps, the world lines of every place and thing on earth, all tangled together by the singularity into a tumult of white light. But with his eyes closed, Knox found he could sort individual strands out of the flood. At first... All he caught were random, dissociated glimpses of things, the tigers and pistons, astrolabes and armies of Borkase Aleph flashing by him in dizzying succession, a small boy in homespun asleep beneath a tree of unfamiliar species, a bald, bespectacled man in formal attire sipping from a glass of water at a rostrum, a hydroelectric dam towering amid granite monoliths, water coursing down its spillway, a lone pine on a windswept hillside, a sun-drenched bed nestling two lovers in flagrante delicto, both of them female, a latticework of underground conduits, vast mechanisms performing incomprehensible tasks off in the middle distance. Was everyone seeing the same thing he was? Or was each individual consciousness following its own path through the hyperspatial maze? If the latter, that would make the singularity the first-ever quantum wave function that didn't collapse to a determinate eigenvalue under observation. No wonder Sasha was going along with this. There had to be a Nobel Prize, or three, in it for him. 
Knox was discovering he could influence the flow of impressions or attune his awareness to specific sequences within the jumble. Concentrating, he could see Rusalka, her deck lights ablaze under the stars of a summer night. A stray impulse, a flicker, and he was playing voyeur in his own stateroom, watching himself and Mariana in their first brief disastrous tryst. Another random thought, and he stood looking over Mariana's shoulder as she paced through the secret lab five nights ago. So that's how Grecian had tracked them down so effortlessly. Extraordinary means indeed. It worked both ways, though. Another instantaneous transition, and he hovered unseen in a dimly lit chamber where Grecian conferred with Sasha, their lips moving soundlessly. Forget about changing the past. Just being able to view it made the singularity an espionage device of unparalleled power and scope. No secret in the world, past or present, could be hidden from its all-seeing eye. The ultimate destabilizer. If such a thing ever fell into the wrong hands... No, he kept forgetting. It already had. There were other temptations as well. To lose oneself in memory, in regret. Weathertop's great room, whole and inviolate, swam into view. For a moment, Knox stood once more, peering into a plasma screen filled with snow, as Mycroft, alive again, called up canned speculation about what one might see if one gazed into a naked singularity. With a flash, the peaceful scene dissolved in flames. Again, he watched his friend stagger out of the smoke and into a hail of bullets. There was something wrong with the images the singularity was conjuring up. Images of Mycroft wandering lost midst the wreckage, his body seeming almost to pass through the now-canted beams of the great room. No more. Knox forced his eyelids open and found himself staring again into the singularity's undifferentiated opalescence. It felt as if he'd been gone for hours. The countdown display, its digits nearly lost in the uniform ubiquitous glow, showed twelve minutes twenty seconds still on the clock. Less than three minutes had passed since the portal first opened. Lock on target space-time confirmed, the synthesized voice proclaimed, commencing insertion sequence. A plasma screen, lost till now in the gloom, came alight with an image of a microwave oven. A digital display above the glass door gave the date and time as 2 a.m. August 5th. The picture was fuzzy, warped by the screen's proximity to Vortilac's magnetic field. Even so, Knox could recognize the probe receptacle Mariana had videoed in the secret lab. He heard the computer-controlled crane arm screech as it reconfigured itself, inching a slender extension down into the heart of Vortilac's containment chamber. A digital readout mounted on the body of the crane tracked how the force was rising on the arm as it drew ever closer to the singularity. Five meters. One and a half gravities. Four and a half meters. 1.85 gravities. Four meters. 2.35 gravities. Three and a half meters. Three gravities. By the time the mechanism whirred to a halt, its business end was two and a half meters from the pulsating vortex and straining under six times its normal weight. Then, a whine, the abrupt click of a release mechanism, and a fleeting glimpse of something arcing into the radiance, a metallic cylinder, a twin to the one Grecian had been waving around at his show-and-tell, except this one was shrieking at the edge of human hearing and beyond as it warped and twisted in the grip of Vortilac's gravity. It was falling far too fast to follow now, but the display on the crane posted the numbers in quick succession. 
40 gravities, 150 gravities, 600, more zeros than the display could hold. A final burst of light, and the probe was gone, gone off in a direction the eye could not follow, leaving the chamber reverberating with the thunderclap of its passage. You've been listening to Singularity by Bill DeSmet. Smet.